chapter 12. Very familiar words, at least the first part of them. I'd like to read chapter 12 beginning in verse 1 and read down through verse 13. As we continue our series on full disclosure, Jesus is our runner. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. 1962, Englewood, California, Dean Carnassus was born. At age four, he ran home from kindergarten every day. At age 11, he hiked the rim of the Grand Canyon and he climbed the peaks of Mount Whitney, the largest mountain in the contiguous United States. On his 12th birthday, he rode his bike to his grandparents without his parents' knowledge, 40 miles. At 14, his track coach got him interested in long distance, and he said this, go out hard and finish harder. Dean won his first race. When his coach came over and said, how was it? He said, not bad. It was pretty good. And his coach said, you didn't push yourself hard enough. It should have hurt like hell. He never forgot those words. In 1982, he won the Badwater Ultramarathon 135 miles in 120 degree in Death Valley. In In 2005... He ran 350 miles across Northern California in a little less than 81 hours. He didn't stop. He didn't sleep. He didn't eat. 
He didn't even stop to sample Sonoma Valley Chardonnay. The only time he stopped was to relieve himself and to change his shoes six times because his feet were swelling. In his lifetime, he has run 200 miles without stopping 11 times. He's run 148 miles on a treadmill in 24 hours. And five years ago, he ran 3,000 miles from Disneyland to New York City in 75 days. And he's not dead. In fact, he's one of the most heavily sought-after speakers in the country. You say, that's a lot of running, but running's not new. You know, when the Greeks started the Olympic Games, they began the Olympic Games with four races. The first one was a sprint, 200 meters, the length of a regular stadium. Second race was 400 meters, the length of a stadium twice. The third race was somewhere between three quarters of a mile and three miles, and they would change the, the uh, distance from time to time. And then the fourth race was interesting. It was 800 meters run by soldiers in all of their armor, 60 pounds. In antiquity, running was big. And of all the gospel writers, of all the New Testament writers, there's one writer who writes about racing more than any other, and that's the Apostle Paul. And he seizes on the word race to describe the Christian life. To the Ephesians, he says, Do not count my life, I do not count my life of any value or precious to me, if only I finish my course. To the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that all run a race, but only one receives the prize? To the Galatians, he says, You were running well, so what hindered you from obeying the truth? To the Philippians, he says, one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead, I press on. And then to his son in the faith, Timothy, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now think about this preacher preaching this sermon called the book of Hebrews. He is preaching to a group of people who are poor, who are persecuted, and who are weary. Many of them are ready to give up the race. They're asking the question, we say it every week, if there is a God and if He really loves me, why is my life so hard? And in every chapter of this sermon, He gives an answer. He answers that question, why is life so hard? But nowhere is the answer clearer than here in today's text. The answer is you're running a race. Somebody has said, in all of human history, there has never been a culture that had a lower threshold for pain than our culture. There's never been a culture in all of human history that is less equipped to deal with the cruel realities of life more than ours. And if that's true, then there's no culture, there's no people, there's nobody in human history that needs this message more than us. So let's dig in. First of all, notice. The preacher says life is a race. Look at verse 1. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run the race, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Of all of the metaphors that he could have selected to describe the Christian life, he uses the word race. It is a race. Do you know what the word race in Greek is? Agon, from which we get the word agony. And what the preacher is saying is, to live the Christian life is an agonizing struggle. Now think of the relevance to this group of people. They're poor, they're panicked, they're persecuted, they're Christians who are wondering whether or not they should go back and worship Caesar. They've lost their homes, they've lost their livelihoods, they've lost, in many cases, family members to the sword. And what the preacher says to them in verse 1 is, you are not alone. You're not alone. You may think that you're alone, you may think you're the only one, but you aren't the only one. Did you hear about the guy who died when his car was swept away in a massive flood? He goes before Peter at the gate. And he says to Peter, Peter, before I come in, can I ask you a question? Is it okay if I talk about the circumstances of my death? Would it be okay if I told people how scared I was when that water hit me? Would it be okay if I told them how much water hit me? And Peter said, yeah, but remember Noah's here. (laughs) You know, there's something about our suffering that makes us think we're the only one. And what the preacher's saying is you're not the only one. You're not alone. Life's a race. It's long, it's agonizing, and it's a race that none of us choose. It's a race that's been set before us. This week I read the words of John MacArthur who was commenting on the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. You know what he said? He said, the standard approach in this text is to picture a stadium full of Christians who have died and are in heaven and they're watching us. But there is not a single shred of evidence in the Scriptures that would speak to that. The saints in heaven are not looking down. They're not preoccupied with us. They're lost in the love and wonder of God. I mean, how many times have you read that? We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, so I better watch my P's and Q's. They're looking at me. (laughs) That's the exact opposite of what the preacher's saying. You say, then why does he call them witnesses? In what way are they witnesses? Well, the word there, witness, in Greek is martyr. And what he's saying is, don't look at what they're looking at. Look at what their life attests to. What the preacher's saying is, they're not looking at us. We should be looking at them. You know why? Because their eyes are not fixed on themselves. They're fixed on Jesus. That's what he talks about in chapter 11. That's what it's all about. They've run their race. They're not focused on themselves, their circumstances. They're focused on Christ. And so should we. Not too many years ago, there was a great corruption of the Scripture called the prosperity gospel. I mean, some of you know. Name it, claim it. And at the heart of the prosperity gospel was this view that God would never allow suffering and pain in the life of a Christian. All pain, all suffering is bad. Emotional pain, physical, financial. And that's exactly the opposite of what this preacher is saying. Look what he says in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. 
but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. If you've been to the gym, except the one that has no judgment zone, (laughs) you probably have seen or heard the adage, no pain, no gain. In other words, if you don't sense pain, if you don't push it, there will be no gain. That's exactly what the word training means in Greek. You know what it means? Working until you're weary. And the reason we have a problem with pain is we don't expect it to hurt. And the reason we don't expect it to hurt is because we're always focused on our own comfort. George MacDonald, the great author, poet, preacher, once said, everything difficult points to something our theory of life has yet to embrace. Everything difficult points to something our theory of life has yet to embrace. You see, if you're living to maximize your own comfort, sorrow and suffering will destroy you. But if you're living to love God and to love your neighbor, then you will discover that your suffering will bring healing, not only to you, but often to your neighbor. So the preacher says, Christian life, it's a race. Agonizing struggle. Second, he gives us the reason why it's a race. Look at verse 5. For have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wearied when he reproves you or when you're reproved by him. Now notice he changes the metaphor. He goes from the metaphor of a race and a coach to a father. Why does he change the metaphor? I'll tell you why he changes it. Because when you're in the midst of pain and struggling, you don't need a coach screaming at you. You need need a father who loves you. He quotes Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The word discipline, pedia, from which we get the word pediatric. What the preacher is saying is, Our father is like a pediatrician. What's the purpose of a pediatrician? What do pediatricians do? He or she promotes the healing and well-being and the flourishing of the child. Sometimes the pediatrician will administer pain like a shot. Why? In order to save the child from greater pain in the future. And that's exactly what the preacher is saying about our father in heaven. Think about what this means to those who are suffering. Your father's not absent. Your father's not asleep. He's not out to get you. The fact is, your father has one motive. To promote the flourishing of you. You know, when our youngest daughter was little, she hated to go to the doctor. I don't think she likes it now, but she really didn't like it. And whenever she went, she'd always clam up. She'd never say anything to the doctor. And so one time we asked her, Maggie, why don't you talk to the doctor? When you see that, why don't you say something to the doctor? You don't even answer any questions. Why are you just, like, silent? She said, because he doesn't care about me. How do you argue with that? 
He didn't. <laughs> she was just another patient in a long line of five-minute visits. You see, even the best pediatrician, even the best parent gets it wrong. Sometimes we do exactly the right thing. We say exactly the right. Sometimes we do, but other times we fail royally. But our Heavenly Father never fails. Every difficulty, every suffering that He administers in your life is to get its way all the way down into your soul so that He promotes His own greatness and glory in your life. If you can't see that all of the pain in your life is for the purpose of growing you, you're not going to have a very easy time of it. In fact, you're going to have a tough time making it. Someone has said, the whole Bible attests to the fact that God brings external brokenness into my life to connect with my internal brokenness to move me from blindness to sight, from cowardice to courage, from selfishness to generosity. The Lord takes external brokenness and He combines it with my internal brokenness to move me from my own blindness to spiritual sight, from my own cowardice to courage, from my own selfishness to generosity. Look at Joseph. He was idolized by his father. Why? Because he was the son of Rachel, his beloved wife. And when she dies, Jacob transfers all of his affection and devotion to his son, Joseph. And what's he do? He dotes on him. He gives him gifts in the presence of his own brother. The truth is, Joseph is on his way to becoming a miserable, self-possessed jerk. So what does God do? He uses the jealousy of his brothers, the lust of Potiphar's wife, the greed of strangers, the neglect of friends, years in prison to make him strong and humble. And what the preacher is saying is, unless you see your life as that kind of race, with a clear divine purpose, you're not going to make it. Everything He brings into your life, every pain, every suffering, is for the purpose of getting your eyes off of yourself and off your circumstances and onto Him. Now, He could end the sermon right there, but He doesn't. He tells us life is a race. He gives us the reason. And then finally, He gives us the response. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands, Strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Do you see what he's saying? He's giving us reasons. I mean, after giving us the reason for the race, he gives us the application. He tells us how to run. He gives us four ways in which we ought to run. First of all, he says, get down. In the space of 12 verses, he uses the word therefore twice. Why? Because what he wants to do is remind us of all that Jesus has done. Therefore, since Jesus has run his race, therefore, since Jesus has run his race, 
Now think of Jesus. All of his life, he knew himself to be a child. Everything he did, he saw his father do. Everything he said, he said, I say only what I fear my father saying. Everything he did, everything he said, was what he got from the Father. And what he's saying to us is, we have that same Father. Because Jesus has run his race, we can too. You know something, no child knows what the parent knows. They may think they do, but they don't. You know, it's an amazing thing. The older you get, the smarter your parents seem. You think to yourself, oh, now I know why they did that. Now I know what they meant. The older you get, the smarter your parents seem. And if that's true of our heaven or our earthly parents, how much more true is that of our heavenly Father? You think of it, most of your anger and your despair as a child was the product of your own ignorance and your own arrogance. I'll show them. What the preacher's saying is, you want to get angry. You want to be in despair about your suffering. But get down. Humble yourself. Remember who you are. You're a child. And he's growing you. And then second, he says, get under. That's what obedience means. Obedience literally means to get under what you hear. That's what he tells them to do. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. In other words, do the right thing. Do the next thing. Put one foot in front of the other even if you don't feel like it. Just do it. Fake it till you make it and you will make it. And you know what will happen? You'll get stronger. You think of the weight room. The weaker you feel, the stronger you get. Third, he says, get serious. In other words, look at yourself. Do you ever wonder why they have all those mirrors in the weight room? So you can see what you need to work on. That's exactly what he's saying here. Make straight paths for your feet. In other words, look for all of the idols in your life. You know what will display them? Your suffering. Years ago, I knew a man who preached all over this country and around the world. And one of the things he'd always preach is trust Jesus, praise Him in all circumstances. And he did a great job and people, thousands of people heard that message. Thousands of people grew in their faith. And you know what happened to that man? He had a triple bypass. And he was scared to death. What was God doing? He was using his own message of courage and strength that had touched thousands of lives. He used that own message in, the own, in that guy's life. He brought suffering into his life as a mirror to show him how much surgery was necessary in his own soul. So get down, get under, get serious, and one other get, get focused. 
I love what John Stott once said. How can you ever believe in a God who didn't suffer? Think of it. We're the only faith that knows of a God who suffered. The Muslims know of nothing like that. The Hindus know of nothing like that. The Zoroastrians know nothing like that. The Buddhists don't either. There's only one faith that attests to a God who suffers. And that's Christianity. Our God, God ran the race. Our God suffered. And you know what's amazing? If He had never suffered, we'd never be saved. It's through His suffering that we find unspeakable joy and glory that is full. I mean, think of Palm Sunday. He's walked his entire ministry. His brothers have said, why don't you go up to Jerusalem? My time has not come. For three years, he's avoided the limelight. But then he says to his disciples one day, go into that village opposite and you'll find a young colt, the foal of a donkey on whom no one has ever ridden. Bring him here. Why does he ride? He rides to be beaten. Why does he ride? He rides to be cursed. He rides to be broken. He rides because he's a son of a father who is not only disciplining him, but crushing him so that we might know a father who disciplines us so that we might flourish. He lost his glory that we may gain his glory. He was abandoned in his suffering so that we might never be abandoned in our suffering. He finished his race in victory so that we would finish our race and never know defeat. 200 years ago, John Rippon wrote these words, speaking for God. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. The Christian life's a race. Anybody that tells you it's easy is lying or stupid. There's a reason. So that he might make us perfect. And he tells us how. To run. We're in it together. If God loves me so much, why is my life so hard? Because there's a whole world out there that needs to know that the pain of a Christian can be redemptive, not just for yourself but for so many others.
Full disclosure, Jesus is our runner. Think about him. Amen.